On the record. On News Talk. You're listening to On the Record here on News Talk with me, Susan Kyo, until one o'clock this afternoon. Now, lots coming up over the hour, but firstly, we're joined in studio by Dr. Maeve Ogan, who's a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin and medical director with the Sexual Assault and Treatment Units. Dr. Ogan, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Can you tell us first a little bit about what your role is like and what it's actually like to be in one of these units? Yeah, so there are six sexual assault treatment units, Dublin, Mullingar, Galway, Letterkenny, Cork and Waterford. And the aim is that nobody in this country is more than three hours from their nearest sexual assault treatment unit in order that they can receive care at a time of crisis in a prompt fashion. There are three ways that people will come to a sexual assault unit. The majority, about two thirds, will come following reporting an incident to Angarda Siakona. The guards will bring them to the unit, we'll take forensic samples and we'll give them the medical care that they require. That medical care includes giving preventative treatment for infectious diseases and also giving emergency contraception. The other ways that people will come is sometimes somebody will say, yes, something happened to me. I absolutely do not want to go to the guards, but I do want to make sure I don't get HIV. I do want to make sure I don't get chlamydia and I do want to make sure I don't get pregnant. And in that context, we will see people, no problem, give them that care, support them, link them with the appropriate resources from our local rape crisis centre and ensure that they get whatever care they need. The third way then is people who are uncertain. They say, that was awful. I really would like to report to the guards, but it's four in the morning. I don't have the strength. Um, You know, I might wait a month or two months. The problem is DNA evidence Mm. deteriorates quickly. And if someone only comes to us after two months, there won't be any DNA evidence. So the guards will still detect the crime. There's no statute of limitations on on sexual crime. They will still detect it. But the DNA evidence will be lost. So we now, um, for the past couple of years, have had had a scenario whereby we can store that securely store that DNA evidence proximate to our SATU, which gives somebody a year in which they can decide whether or not they ultimately wish to report to Angarda Shirkana. So do you have numbers then on that, Maeve, as in how does that break down? Do most people come and say, okay, maybe it would be safer for you to take the forensic evidence. I don't really know what I'm going to do down the line, but maybe it would be better to have it just in case. Yeah, so the vast majority of people still report to Angarda Siakana first. And that's the best way because, you know, all things being equal, that's the best way because the guards can then access CCTV footage. They can um, interview other relevant witnesses because it's all happening just at the time. The issue with the storage of evidence is, yes, we have the DNA evidence. Yes, we have the patient's disclosure that happened at the time. Um, But there may be little pieces of the jigsaw that aren't as available to the guards if two months, three months or six months have passed. Um, So I suppose if you look at the number of people who come to us, about um, about two thirds will will come via Angarda Shikona. About twenty percent then will just come saying, "I don't want to speak to any criminal justice agency. I just want to get the health care I need." And then probably about ten percent then will store their evidence with us. And who do they meet when they get there? As in, if somebody comes in and they're fairly certain that they don't want to report anything. Is there somebody that talks through that with them or do you just take the person's decision and proceed as they'd like you to proceed? Yeah, so every unit has a somebody available 24 hours a day to take a call. Um, and they either the guard or the patient themselves will speak directly to this person and make a plan. When the person comes into us, they still have the agency to change their mind. Mm. So somebody might come to us 
with Angarda Shiakana and then may say, oh, you know, actually, I don't want to pursue this with the guards and they'll have further discussions with the guards and, and they may decide not to. Or alternatively, somebody may come to us either to store evidence or just for health care. They'll meet the forensic examiner. They'll talk it through again and they will say, no, actually, I've met you all. I realise you don't have horns and a tail and, you know, you're not all going to judge me or, yes. you know, they, they, they realise maybe they feel a bit the, more comfortable yeah. in the environment. And um, then we can we can link them up with Angarda Shiakona or we can choose to store the evidence. So there's a lot of, I mean, these, these consultations are not like, you know, a rapid fire consultation um, that might happen in another scenario. These are quite protracted discussions, mm. very much led by what the patient, and they're not all women. You know, I suppose we talk about emergency contraception and people think, oh yeah, it's all, it's men, all it's women. Wrong. It's men, generally um, sort of 90%, 10% women to men. Um, so, you know, we see people, we support them and we try and help them make the right decision for them at the right time. And they're not just meeting medical staff. They're not just meeting a forensic examiner. They're also meeting meeting um, one of our staff from, from Dublin Rape Crisis for, for the Rotunda SATU or from the Allied Rape Crisis Centres from the, the SATUs around the country. So somebody who is skilled in psychological support as well, um, who will speak to them immediately, but also give them information regarding accessing follow-up counselling. So we very much describes our, uh, describe ourselves as a sexual assault response team. There's no I in team. It's not one single person. Um, it is the, the, mm. the sort of wraparound care from the entire team, not just at the time, but also for follow-up visits afterwards to ensure, you know, to do follow-up STI screens um, sure and to ensure everything worked. Exactly. Medication. Yeah. The issue of sexual assault and rape and all those related issues, um, consent as well, we're hearing much, much more about them recently. Are you seeing that increase come through your doors in the units? Yeah, I mean, the reality is we don't know why the numbers have increased. Um, I'm a bit of an optimist and I would hope the numbers are increasing because more people are telling us what happened rather than more incidents actually happening. But the reality of it is we, we don't, don't know. currently know. Um, the good news is that the, you know, the data that we currently work on in terms of prevalence of sexual violence in this country is the Sexual Abuse and Violence in Ireland study, which was published in 2002. So it's quite old at this stage. The good news is that um, Charlie Flanagan and the Department of Justice have arranged to do an additional review um, of numbers and but we prevalence. we won't get that for another few years. We won't get that no. for another few years. But nevertheless, that's that's really, I mean, we, we don't, nor do we want to just get the data for a month either. That's yeah, not relevant. Actually, prevalence data over a sustained period of time will enable us to ensure that our services are responsive to what our, what our people need and also responsive to what society needs for education, for prevention, for discussion, for highlighting issues around this. So you know, I, don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a fabulous thing that there has been a commitment to actually undertaking this piece of research because, as I say, we always talk about the, the prevalence data from Savvy and maybe that's outdated. Maybe it's not. Maybe we'll find the statistics are very similar. You mentioned consent there, and that's something that we've been talking a lot about recently as well. Do you find that there are people who are coming through your doors and they're unsure what it is that's happened? Even, you know, they, they know something has happened to them, but they're unsure, you know, was was that my fault? Was that his fault, her fault? You know, that there is still that kind of confusion there, maybe especially among young people. Yeah, I mean, so often I think whether you're young or old, um, if an instance of sexual violence is visited upon you, the very first thing that most people do is blame themselves. 
Um, and there is, you know, very glibly, you can say the only cause of rape is rapists. And, you know, that, that sounds that sounds kind of shallow and jokey, but it is actually the truth. And nobody deserves to have sexual violence visited upon them. I mean, ultimately, in the judicial system, uh, a criminal prosecution has to be undertaken beyond reasonable doubt. Um, you know, so that that is the burden of truth for a criminal prosecution. But nevertheless, regardless of what happens in a criminal prosecution, if somebody comes to us thinking that something has happened, then it, we are duty bound to support them through that and to give them the necessary um, care that they need, but also the psychological support that they need to tease things out. Talk to me a little bit uh, about staffing levels, Maeve, if you would. Um, so you mentioned there there's six units around mm-hmm. the country. Um, the Dublin Rape Crisis uh, Centre, Nolene Blackwell, she was out saying that, you know, possibly if something happens, somebody last night and they're waking up this morning, it's Sunday morning, and they need to go and see somebody, they need to present at one of these clinics, that there is an issue around weekend cover. Tell me what is the setup currently with that? Yeah, so we have each sexual assault treatment unit um, is staffed by a a rota for forensic examiners who may be specially trained doctors or nurses and also support nurses. Um, And we do have a problem in in supporting both of those rotas. Not in each of the units. The primary places where where that's a a major issue is the Dublin unit and the Mullingar unit. Um, So, we have options. We could we could either just close and say, well, that's it, come back on Monday. But we don't do that because that's not the right thing to do for a patient. So our two rotas would work um, in parallel and we would ensure that always um, either the Dublin unit or the Mullingar unit were available. Now, to be honest, the last three months, um, have noticed we've trained additional people and there's a huge improvement in our rotas. And the majority of the time, each unit has 24-7 cover, but it's not always. And we do ensure that if one unit isn't on call, the other one is. Um, the other really positive thing is that we have 13 new forensic nurse examiners who are in training at the moment. Now, their training takes almost a year, um, so it will be the autumn before they're available. But those those nurse, those specialist nurses are undergoing their training at the moment. Um, we're always training new people. We've a couple of GPs coming on board, a couple of other doctors um, with particular experience to bring to the service. So it, it's con- you're constantly trying to identify additional people because naturally people move on um, either due to their own circumstances changing or this is tough work, you know, and it's not something yeah, necessarily... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually because um, I think, you know, like you say, all sexual assaults, rapes, to have that visited on anybody, it's, it really is horrific. And even in the media when you hear about them and there's a lot of high-profile stories... And, you know, even as a journalist, a lot of those stories would stay with you. And it is something that you think about again and again. How do you cope just personally? Like, that's your job. That's, you know, you're hearing about it all the time. You're meeting these people. You're, I suppose, your nurses are reporting back to you about different cases that have been in on different weekends. How do you sort of, like, manage to, to deal with all of that? Yeah, well, vicarious trauma. So, you know, trauma to the carer is a very real thing. And indeed, last year at our national conference, we had a whole set on that because it's really important to highlight that it exists and that, you know, you know yourself, you're listening to something on the radio and it sounds horrific, you can turn off the radio. 
if you're actually your hearing that mm-hmm. in your job, you can't turn that off and nor should you. And nor should you decompensate in front of the patient. It's really important to provide the patient with the care that they need. But afterwards, you do need to debrief. We have regular peer review where we um, talk, obviously, in a totally anonymised way. We talk about situations that we've and encountered how and how with. they worked out. And we also have employee assistance programmes where we can all lift the phone and talk to somebody at any time. And I suppose I often worry more about my specialist nurses because I work also as an obstetrician and gynecologist. Mm. So much of my work is extremely happy bringing babies into the world and seeing excited parents. But you can imagine if you're a specialist nurse working in this area all the time, you really do look at, you, you have to look after your mental health. You owe it to your patients actually. And uh, I'm interested as well, um, and I had a look at it uh, on the Rotunda's website in, in particular, in relation to somebody, if they are going to pick up the phone and make that call, whether they call the guards first or whether they're in touch with yourselves, take us through some of the kind of fir- first bits of advice that you give somebody, you know, just in terms of after the event. You know, I think people yeah. are really interested in that. Like, what do you do, you know, in before you actually get to meet you or somebody who's working for you. Yeah, so it really very much depends on what way you want to go with this in terms of reporting to the guards or otherwise. If somebody goes to the guards, the guards will kind of take the lead on directing them exactly what to do. So, for example, they will be advised, and this is tough, they'll be advised not to eat, not to drink, not to pass urine if possible. If they need to do those things, the guards can take what's called an early evidence kit. So they can take the urine sample and they can take the mouth swabs. So it's not absolute that somebody needs to avoid eating and drinking till they come to us. But if if we're trying to um, maintain forensic evidence, then that's why we, and that's why we see people really quickly. It's why we see people within three hours because we don't want any of this difficult thing of not eating and drinking going to the loo to last very long. But the guards can can do help us with that and advise us on uh, advise the patient on that. Then, um, if somebody is purely coming purely for health needs, what we say is they come as soon as possible because emergency contraception is highly effective. But the earlier you take it, the better it is. And um, so you know we try and rather than somebody say, well, look, I'll wait till Wednesday and see how I'm feeling then, and then maybe I'll make a call then. We also work very collaboratively with the Rape Crisis Centre, and they have a twenty four hour phone line as well, and sort of the script of their phone line will be very similar to the information somebody will get if they if they ring an SATU. So we, we work very much as part of a team. We're not we're not siloed. Um, a patient needs care. We'll all try and work together to ensure they get the right care that they need at the right time. You mentioned there women um, accounting for the vast majority, I suppose, of mm. people that you see. Um, is there an age group that, you know, d- that you see more commonly than others? Yes, younger women are more represented in our numbers than older women. Is there that an average said, age? Or? Um, yeah, generally around the age of 22. Okay. Um, but what I would say is that there is no person who is immune to sexual, vi- sexual mm. violence. And sometimes we would see people who come to us who are, you know, 52 and say, you know, I, I'm too old for this. this. This shouldn't have happened to me. I should have been able to prevent this happening. So again, the whole blame thing, because somebody doesn't fit into, you know, this kind of the mythical stereotype. stereotype. Yeah. yeah. So it is important that, you know, sexual violence very simply is unwanted sexual contact of any kind. And if somebody feels they fit into that category, well, that's when they need help um, and need support and need the right support for them at the right time. And there, the supports do exist. There was another uh, story, Maeve, that was around during the week in relation to um, this umbrella group, the Irish Observatory on Violence Against Women. And they were saying that, um, you know, that the government, while all of these issues are being talked about a lot more, there is kind of a slowness on behalf of the government to 
tackle all issues that relate to violence and women and that mm-hmm. they urge Ireland to ratify uh, the Istanbul Convention. Would that be something that you would agree with as in, do you think that we have, you know, we're on the road to, to dealing with a lot of these issues, but we do have kind of a, a good bit to go? Yeah, I mean, the, the Department of Justice and the allied departments, you know, Department of Health, yeah. Department of Health and Children, our Department of Children and Youth Affairs, have really moved on all this over the last number of years. There is a CUSC strategy, um, which we all, that's Department of Justice strategy with the allied agencies that we all have to provide updates to on a regular basis in terms of are we hitting our targets or are we not? Um, And there is also currently a Department of Health review of the SATU services looking at how we build a consistent and sustainable service. Um, And in addition to that, the Department of Justice have a review being chaired by Tom O'Malley at the moment about the prosecution of sexual crime, the investigation and prosecution of sexual crime. So I think we're really upping our game in terms of providing responsive services. And indeed, Ireland are leading the way in in some areas of this. For example, um, when I go to European meetings, people are very impressed by our forensic nurse examiner role because many European countries don't have that. And the Rotunda in 1985 was the very first sexual assault treatment unit in Western Europe. So I think we often in Ireland look to other people and see how we lag behind. But, you know, sometimes there are positives and it's important to grasp those positives and to focus on them and look at how they integrate into a better service going forward rather than always looking at the outside and saying we could be doing something totally different. And Maeve, finally there, because I know we touched on some of the staffing and resources, if there was one thing that could improve the service that you're in charge of between now and, say, next year, and I know we talked about the Savvy Report and that would be a number of years, what would it be? Yeah, it is a sustainable staffing model, definitely. So when people move on, you can replace them at a quicker rate? You can replace them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that just comes down... To training, it comes down to obviously a bit of personal commitment from individuals. It comes down to all industrial relations issues being easily easily um, ironed out. It also comes down to other things that are outside our control. For example, you know, many GPs are overburdened at the moment, so to ask them to take on another piece of work is, is difficult. So it's a sort of a a whole of health service response that will improve feed into your yeah, service. improve our service yeah okay we're going to leave it there my thanks to Dr Maeve Ogan medical director of the sexual assault treatment unit now for anyone who might need it I just want to give the details of the rape crisis center if you need help or are unsure of what to do you can call the national 24 hour helpline that's 1800 77 88 88 you can get support and guidance from a trained person or you can email at counseling at rcc.ie on the record. On the record. On News Talk.